Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This week we take another dip into the Hay Archive with author and founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, Laura Bates. I've been hugely lucky to interview a range of fascinating, inspiring women at the Hay Festival, from Helena Kennedy to Harriet Harman to Lindy West. Every time I come away with my eyes opened and my mind sparking with ideas. Today I've been asked to choose three excerpts for you from the Hay Archives, an event I've seen and loved, one I'd have liked to have chaired, and one of my own most memorable events from Hay. The event I was lucky enough to see live, and from which I've chosen an extract to share with you, is Jeanette Winterson's 2016 Raymond Williams Lecture, in which she had the gargantuan task of celebrating 400 years of Shakespeare, 2016 being the 400th anniversary of the playwright's death. Jeanette is a personal hero of mine, a writer whose work defies categorisation and changes lives, so this was a real treat. This particular event at Hay seemed very special to me for two reasons. The first is that it was not ostensibly about women, and even in this day and age, it's still not uncommon for a gendered lens to remain completely missing from a lecture like this. And yet almost immediately, here was Jeanette describing women in the time of Shakespeare as versions of nothingness. Here she was discussing witch trials as a form of performative communal misogyny. The second reason this event has particular resonance for me is that it was Jeanette's mention of British witch trials that led me after the event into a rabbit hole of research and discovery that eventually led me to write a book of my own about the misogyny and double standards of the witch trials, which have never really gone away. And that sparking of ideas and connections and flashes of inspiration is very much part of the magic of Hay and something for which I owe Jeanette a great debt of gratitude. But Shakespeare, now in the last working years of his life, begins to talk to himself in a kind of code as well as a coda to his work. In what we call the late plays, Coriolanus, Pericles, The Winter's Tale, and The Tempest. The Winter's Tale, 1611, has magic in it, which was risky. A statue comes to life. It's required, you do awake your faith. And it has three women in it too, who cannot be silenced by male rage or misogyny. And that's an interesting moment in history, 1611, because the following year, 1612, sees the trial of the Lancashire witches, the most famous, infamous witch trial in history that set the template for the later Salem trials in Massachusetts. It was the first time that a trial had been documented because James took a personal interest in this. From then on, thousands of women were burned and tortured. This was the thoroughgoing ridding of the sacred feminine. Woman as wise, woman belonging to her ancient lineage of the goddess, translated through the Catholic religion into the Virgin Mary, held by Elizabeth in the national consciousness and trashed in the reign of James I. Not Shakespeare's way of doing business. Which may be why, in his last play, The Tempest, everything depends on Miranda. But let's move on a little, shall we, and leave Shakespeare in his space and have a look at Shakespeare in our space. We don't go to Shakespeare to find out about life in Elizabethan and Jacobean England. We go to Shakespeare, still, 400 years later, 
to find out about ourselves now. I like this image. It's Manchester, last New Year's Eve. Shakespeare's right there. He would have recognized this scene very well, and so do I. I was born in Manchester. It's a quiet night for us. <laughs> One of Shakespeare's most brilliant creations, Falstaff, is permanently drunk. And he's fat. The Puritans hated Falstaff. But Shakespeare only hated those who were enemies of life, like the Puritan hypocrite Angelo in Measure for Measure, who cracks down on prostitution while trying to rape a nun. Or Malvolio, the cross-gartered social climber. Or Iago, who wants to destroy happiness, because he can. We know those types. Shakespeare is always on the side of life, which for him is energy, risk, mistakes, appetites, courage, creativity. And later, forgiveness, second chances. Falstaff, fat and drunk, loyal, ridiculous, big-hearted, is a template for a particular strand of English comedy to come. Frankie Howard, Carry On Films, Matt Lucas, David Williams. Miranda Hart properly belongs to the Falstaff line. He's a misfit, he's awkward, he, fall, he falls in and he fails in love. He's the one who gets dumped in the Thames in a, in a linen basket in The Merry Wives of Windsor. And he's the one who gets dumped by Prince Hal when Hal becomes king. Here's what Falstaff says, he's talking about sack, which by the way is what Falstaff drinks pints of, not something that he carries on his shoulder. He says, if sack and sugar be a fault, God help the wicked. If to be old and merry is a sin, then many an old host I know is damned. If to be fat be to be hated, we recognize this talk in our fat-shaming new puritanism, where experts talk about sugar like it's crack cocaine, and where half a bottle of wine turns you into a functioning alcoholic, and where to get old means to have as much cosmetic surgery as you can afford. Falstaff, is the original anti-political correctness. He boards, drinks, sleeps in his clothes, looks like a turkey's ass, and has some of the best lines in Shakespeare. And when Shakespeare gives anyone his best lines, watch out. It's there to unsettle us, overturn our prejudices. And our ideas, now and then, need overturning about the order of the world, who we respect, who should have authority what the hierarchy really means. Let's have a look at what Shakespeare does with women, because this is instructive. Right back with Romeo and Juliet, the play everybody knows, it's Juliet, not Romeo, who has the best lines. Romeo speaks in cliches, Juliet talks poetry. It's the same with Rosalind and Orlando in As You Like It. It's Rosalind who teaches us and her lover how to love. Shakespeare had overturned the Hollywood stereotype before it was invented. Women in Shakespeare's plays are not there to make the guys look good. In fact, it's the opposite. Think about Helena and Bertram in Measure for Measure, Cordelia and Leah, Hermione and Leontes in The Winter's Tale, Viola versus Duke Orsino in Twelfth Night, Portia in The Merchant of Venice, who shows up the lot of them, Antonia, Bassania and Shylock, and Kate in The Taming of the Shrew, Shakespeare's most troubling play. Well, if you're a woman, 
But does Petruchio come out of it well? No, he doesn't. Now, it's 2016, and men don't write poets for women. We know that when we look at what's available to women on stage and screen. Men are interested in each other, and they expect, without even thinking about it, that women are interested in them. <laughs> I see the ladies know the truth. Shakespeare is still ahead of the game here, because he did write for women, all the more remarkably when women were not allowed on that stage. And he wrote for women who really are women, not sidekicks or line feeders, not pretty faces or just sexual interest. He could write terrible women, cold-hearted and ambitious like Lady Macbeth, or Goneril and Regan, those hyenas in lipstick. Or that mother from hell, Volumina in Coriolanus, whose hobby is counting her son's wounds. Has he got enough? Shakespeare wasn't afraid to write these queens of hell. And he can't resist an amiable whore either, like Mistress Overdone or Mistress Quickly. And he knows that some women, like Desdemona or Imogen or Helena or Hermione, will be fearfully wronged by their husbands. He knows that women are duped, beaten, raped, murdered. He was obsessed with the relationship between fathers and daughters. Again, beginning with Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet is forced into marriage. Shakespeare is brimful of inadequate, tyrannical fathers, Lear and Leontes being two of them. We have to wait until that last play the Tempest, before Miranda gets a father worth being born for. Women, as daughters, mothers, wives, lovers, friends, he's lovely on female friendship, find themselves in Shakespeare. Older women are here, powerful women are here. Women who are unafraid of sexual desire. Women who must win the day by their wits. The vastness of womankind is in Shakespeare, and that's why we still go to him. God knows we wish our contemporary writers would catch up. But, as Gertrude Stein said, and she was a big Shakespeare fan, if only our contemporaries could be our contemporaries. Now, Shakespeare, the national playwright, is no poster boy for marriage. It's often been said that the only good marriage in Shakespeare is the Macbeths. <laughs> I mean, at least they talk to each other. But, is murder a good basis for marriage? <laughs> the women in Shakespeare invariably get the worst of the marriage bargains in the sense that the men are not their equals. In the comedies where everybody's supposed to have a merry dance and live happily ever after by Act Five, the future, that's the married future, is left open to speculation. We must decide how things will work out according to the evidence offered by the play. In the most pessimistic, all's well that ends well, what a title, the devoted Helena ends up, ends up with a shallow cad whose own mother can't stand him. In Twelfth Nights, the Duke who counsels, oh, let thy love be younger than thyself, or thy affection cannot hold the bent. Lots of men use that line. <laughs> but the Duke is a man who can't tell the difference between a boy and a girl and a man who never searches for an original line when a cliché will do. Shakespeare is always on the side of women. In one of his loveliest songs, he dries our tears, much ado about nothing. Sigh no more, ladies, sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever. One foot on sea and one on shore, 
to one thing constant never. Then sigh no more, let them go, and be you blithe and bonny, converting all your cries of woe into hey, nonny nonny. This clip is an interview with Ali Smith about her 2005 novel, The Accidental, in which she discusses perceptions of her work and her experiments with form. She beautifully describes writing as a process of listening and of excavation and talks with characteristic patience and generosity about her writing process. I've chosen this clip as the interview I'd have liked to have had the chance to do, I think I could probably interview Ali Smith for days on end without running out of questions, though she might have some objections to that. And for anybody who's as great a fan of Smith's work as I am, this whole event is a joyful listen, with the opportunity to hear her discuss sequence, consequence and layering in her work several years before she would go on to write How to Be Both, the stunning, playfully layered fresco of a novel that would win the then Bailey's Prize, now the Women's Prize for Fiction. The framework of the story that, that we talked about, mm. or that I that mentioned at the beginning, which is of the family okay. and the entrance of Amber into this family, um, in some ways it, it, it perhaps seems at the outset more conventional than some of your earlier books because there is... Apparently. <laughs> Apparently this is a normal novel. <laughs> <laughs> now, you might take issue. You, might think, that, you know, might think that Hotel World was... Well, I do. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> But of course it wasn't because you know nobody thinks it was. I mean, presumably, uh, it's, people are still scared of novels which take different shapes, you know, or still a little alarmed when a novel doesn't seem like it's going to be a normal novel. And so, we, Hotel World had these. I mean, I'm sure many of you have read it, but had these five interlocking stories and five interlocking female characters. Um, but this does. See, I mean, was was there something that you wanted about this, the arc of this particular story of the family, the woman coming in? the individual stories within the family, that was kind of a discipline on which you could go on these great diversions that we're going to, we might talk about a little bit in a moment. Okay. I think um, it's interesting that people have, have seen this novel as a much more traditional novel, and it's because it's very obvious. I mean, there are three sections. One's called beginning, one's called middle, and one's called the end. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you can't get much more traditional than that in a story. That's the way a story's supposed to go. I mean, I... I I really do think it's surprising that this is this is more of a novel, supposedly, than the other novels I've written, which have, have to me, all been quite t- t- chronologically traditional, although they may have played with things within the chronological framework. Um, beginning, middle, and end, you see, once you have a, uh, an arc which is about that particular chronology, then you have uh, an arc of morality, and you have a question which is a moral question, because... Uh, if you like, the end for all of us, the chronological end for all of us, is a kind of a death, and then that's when things get summed up. That's the end. That's when um, we'll, you know, our lives are finished and we lived them and we know the shape of them. So it begs a question. There's a beginning, which then you know, produces a middle, which then produces an end. You know? But happily, um, I'm glad to say that the end in this book is about 100 pages long. Um, so and the beginning is also 100 pages long, and so is the middle. I mean, end in itself... You know, as a concept, you know, as far as I'm concerned, is always a new beginning, always, 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 about something starting again, coming around again. There's a sense in, in this book, and also in Hotel World, of, of the idea of, um, of movement, of the narrator sort of skimming over the surface of events and looking down and dipping into things and coming back up again. And obviously there are the metaphors of swimming and plummeting very much in, in Hotel World. Hmm. I mean, did you feel for you that, that writing 
is is like that about skimming down and going into. Oh no, I don't know what I feel about writing. As soon as I start to think about it, it <laughs> goes slips away. away. Yeah. Uh, really, it's a mysterious process. It's very very hard to talk about, and the more I try to talk about it, the the slipperier it gets, which I think must be good. Mm. I think that's a good thing. I think if we could hold it to us or or have it you know pinned down or or sorted, then I think it would probably be. Um, dead, actually, or something about it would have, would have died off. I think of it more as a kind of a kind of dialogue with something with which you have to argue or with, with which you have to reason. Um, and if, when you're in that dialogue, it's impossible to talk about. And when you're out of that dialogue, it's close enough impossible to talk about. You know. But when you are engaged in, um, because I mean, just to return to, to the framework of the story with the family here. When you decide that you're going to go off into one character and perhaps take us away from what's been happening in the house at at that time, how far do you think you can go? Does there come a point where you think, actually, I can't leave it here anymore, I've I've got to go back, I might might have lost them? I think with... You see, the the book is structured by voice, but the voice is all third person, but each person has a a particular section. And voice always tells you what it wants to do. I mean, it really does. You have to listen to voice, and voice will tell you, you know, well, actually, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to talk about this. This is the word I want to centre myself on at the moment. You just have to listen. It really is a case of having to keep your senses open as a writer. You have to listen, and you have to wait, and often you have to... You know, say, well, do you really want to do that? And the voice says, yes, I have to, I do, that's the thing I'm going to do, and then it does it. There must be some voices that are easier and harder. Mm. To I mean, there's a, there's, sure. a, there's a child in here who's, mm. who's 12, mm. um, and that voice is, is very good. I mean, it seems to me that it, it's not... Um, what, what's interesting about that is not really the, the way you'd expect a 12-year-old, but having had a 12-year-old who is no longer a 12-year-old... I mean, I know that actually is the way they are, but it's not very often the way they turn off in fiction. That's voice for you. Voice makes it all immediate. Voice is what happens if you can't do. If you can't get the voice, then you haven't got the person. I really, I really think that's it. And it's really a game and a and a, and a case and a skill or something craft-wise of just being open enough to listen for voice, so that the the voice itself is alive enough to produce the, the person. That's you know. But do you ever get start off with characters and then find that actually the voice eludes you? Well, presumably. Um, uh, the thing is, I think when you write something, nothing's ever wasted, is what I think. I mean, you, you write something down, there'll be something in it you want, whether you think there isn't or you think there is. I mean, you, you start blank, nothing at all, you write three paragraphs, you look at them, you get rid of everything but one line. The one line has in it something which, you know, intrigues. Uh, so you, you know, you push that one line, or maybe you leave those three paragraphs for two days, you go back and say, I see I've mentioned this word exactly, in this paragraph, this paragraph, and this paragraph, obviously this voice is concerned with exactness. So then you start to think about what that person would do with exactness, and then something else turns up, or maybe, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit like excavation <laughs> as well as listening. It's a bit like you have to kind of uncover something, or, you know, and, and on those terms you have to be very careful with it, and you have to be quite instinctual and listen for it and feel for it and know what not to break, actually, not to be too tough with it. So that when you go back, so you you write something and then you go back and, and look at it. But it, no, that's but how I do it. Everybody does yeah. it differently. No, no yeah. of course. But sure. no, I'm just interested yeah. in the way that, that you do it. But you do that in a, in a quite sort of delicate way, so that you won't, because there's something there that you're not quite aware of yet. Always, 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 always something that you have no idea what it's going to be. You really don't. With, with a novel, you you often have a sense of an overarching structure, which is usually chronological. And novels tend to tend to want to be, for me, chronological. Um, but uh, in that structure, God knows. 
what will happen? Absolutely, you've no idea. You know, you really don't. It's, it's like, and Margaret Atwood describes it, and I think she's absolutely right. It's like walking in a room where the lights are off and you're bumping into furniture. You have no idea what you've just bumped into. You really hurt your leg on it. You just, you know, you don't know whether you should go over here or you'll trip over something. You know, maybe you'll crack your head open. You don't know, but, you know, you get to the other side of the room, you put the light on, and there it is, fully furnished, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it is, I mean, it is a very... Exciting idea, isn't it? The entrance of a stranger into any, any little society. I mean, it's obviously, it's one of the very, very old... It's fabulous. It is a fable. Yes. It is, yes, it is. It's exactly that. The, like I say, the, the, you know, the thing which tests you, either biblically, where um, you know, the, the, the God comes to the door, mythically, where the gods come to the door and ask for help, and then you know, we'll give you the gift of living forever as trees... You know, or you know, uh, or fabulously fable-wise, where you know something a little unlikely might come to the door and say, "If you can guess my name, you know, I'm going to give you a golden goose." You know, and this goose will always lay golden eggs for you. But if you guess my name wrong, <laughs> you know, I run off with your children. Yeah, quite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and because it's um, when we first encounter the household. I mean, the, there is Eve, who is a writer, yeah. and and her partner who is not the father of her children Mm. Um, and he's a a university teacher with not a great record in sexual harassment (laughs) and and then there are the two there's the adolescent boy who doesn't really speak and the 12 year old girl who's sort of really quite sort of shut in on herself it would look to start with as though it was um, you know middle class dysfunctional family and as though you were really about to kind of spread them out on the slab and but in fact I mean what I, I really liked about the book was was the compassion that actually it would have been quite easy. I thought you were really just going to pull them apart. Hmm. Well, but, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, why would you write a book to pull people apart? I mean, uh, people are human, and, and uh, when a voice is there on the page in front of you, it's a human voice if you're lucky, if it's alive. Uh, then, so why would you want to pull it apart unless you were a torturer, which, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think I am yet. I mean, you know, some writers are <laughs> some torturers. Yeah, yeah, they are, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, some writers, uh, actually, Muriel Spark is a glorious torturer. God, mm. when I think of torturers, but she's also a benign torturer. You know, she will happily, you know, stab someone to death, but then she'll have the ghost of the stabbed person to death. You know, the person who's been stabbed to death. You know, haunting the person. You know, I mean, there's, mm. there's always consequence. There's always the human thing. There's always the fact that you know, well, torture will end in, uh, in consequence of some kind. Yeah. And it's also about the tension about, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly the words, so forgive me, but between the kind of love that makes you panic oh, yeah. and the kind of love that makes you happy. Yeah. Well, there we go. The kind of, I mean, that's exactly it, the, the relationship between panic, happy, and love. I mean, mm. it's, it's, <laughs> it's in there in this book. It's an interesting thing about the, um, the, the father not being the children's father. You see, that's something that was forced on me by the voice of the child, Astrid, who absolutely, when I started the book... Um, wanted to be two people and there was this was her this was her, the thing which which formed her she she knows she's Astrid Smart she knows she's also also Astrid Berensky she's not allowed to know about her father so of course this is the one thing she can't help but think about it's the thing she's been told not to think about told not to ask about but she can't stop thinking about it because all of us have things which motivate us and this is you know in a way this was this kind of came with that voice of that girl I've been lucky enough to meet and interview Gloria Steinem several times and her generosity and passion are utterly contagious. She always leaves an audience transformed and somehow drawn into her incorrigible spirit of disruption and joyful revolution. This clip is taken from a very special event for me. 
because it was one of the first digital events organised by Hay after the COVID-19 pandemic forced the festival as we know it to be cancelled. It was a massive blow for authors to lose the opportunity the festival provides for such a rich exchange of ideas and most of all the precious chance to meet and talk to readers. But as I interviewed Gloria from across the Atlantic, thousands of readers, haymakers and feminists joined us from around the world, in far greater numbers than would ever have been possible in a single marquee, and so quite emotionally that sense of community and togetherness was restored. In this extract, Gloria discusses gender roles in the division of labour, a topic with particular poignancy in these challenging times. As I speak, Gender equality has been dealt a devastating blow by the coronavirus crisis and its unequal impact. Over a third of working mothers have lost hours or jobs, and of the 44 million jobs predicted to be lost globally, an estimated 31 million of them will be women's. But in her trademark fashion, instead of presenting this as a fight for women alone, Steinem beautifully articulates how richly we all stand to gain from banishing outdated gender stereotypes and revolutionising our approach to gendered labour. And it was only when I listened back to the interview for this podcast that I suddenly realised how chillingly prescient Gloria's words were as she used the analogy of the dangerous moment when a woman escapes domestic abuse to describe the moment when the United States teetered on the brink of escape from Trump-esque nationalism and white supremacy as the moment where there would be the greatest danger of violence. Less than a year later, the US Capitol would be violently stormed, leaving five people dead. You talk in the book about the benefits for men of experiencing what has long been seen as women's work and about the idea of mothering as a verb rather than as a noun. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Yes, I think I think uh, we're all men and women. Are, each of us is uniquely human and striving to be a full human being. Women often realize uh, our full humanity by being active outside the house, and men often realize it by being active inside the house. The the qualities that are called feminine are just the qualities necessary to raise children. Empathy, patience, attention to detail, you know, all of those qualities. Uh, and for for men to develop them in themselves, which is part of the full circle of humanity, which of course they have absolutely, just as women do, uh, is, is, is greatly enhanced by um, when they're growing up, being raised to raise children, being raised to look after themselves, feed themselves, pay attention to detail, I don't know, you know, whatever it is. Uh, so, so that men get to be whole people too. Mm-hmm. And it actually lengthens their lives <laughs> because the, the masculine role, the idea of being in control and so on, is part of what uh, shortens men's lives. So the more we can raise our sons like our daughters and our daughters like our sons, uh, the, the, the more whole people they will be able to be. And speaking about that, that privilege of becoming a whole person, you talk about women living out the unlived lives of their mothers. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that from your from your own personal perspective? It, it, I must say it took me a, an alarmingly long time to realize that that's what I was doing because my mother um, was not well and had a difficult life and I was kind of loving her and looking after her but striving not to be like my mother, you know, I, which probably, or not to live her life, which is maybe not uncommon. And also I hadn't known her when she, in fact, I was a teenager, I think, before I even realized that she had ever been a journalist and, and been a writer and led an independent life. <clears throat> so it, 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 it took me a while to realize who she could have been uh, and, you know, that's could have been is a terribly sad phrase, isn't it? I mean, yeah. might have been, could have been. Uh, and I, I did begin to realize that I was um, living out her unlived life, which, of course, one can't do. I mean, each person has to live out our own lives. But I suspect that there may be quite a few people who are living out the unlived lives of parents. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that intergenerational awareness and that that handing down of a struggle is, is reflected within the wider feminist movement as well. And one of the things that comes across most joyfully in your work, I think, is the strength of intergenerational feminism. Um, in this book, you, you write about working with young women in the movement. Uh, and you say, because I am older and remember when things were worse, I bring them the gift of hope and optimism because they see how unjust things still are and have a stake in the future. They bring me the gift of anger and impatience. I can't think of a better combination. Um, feminism, I think, is a movement often portrayed from the outside as deeply fractured, often along generational lines. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences of organizing and working with feminists across divides? You know, I, I, I'm not trying to overgeneralize my experience. Some of it comes from being as old as I am because because I was a 50s person, not even a 60s person, you know. So there's there's almost no one, there's maybe one or two people of my age who, you know, became part of the movement or so uh, from the beginning i've i've always uh been working with and organizing with women who were at least a decade younger and more like two decades and now it's you know four or five decades but i i i do think that um just as a general principle as i was trying to say there in in that quote that it is very helpful to us to organize across generations and segregating by age is as ridiculous as and destructive as segregating by race or class or gender or anything else because we you know we we learn from each other uh, we need each other uh, it's um, I, I regret that my culture at least maybe yours too is in this place where they think it's okay to have senior communities mm. uh, and you know which cuts off older people from from younger ones and to the detriment of both so i you know i hope we get out of that 
Absolutely. Um, and on that point specifically of, of working with other women, um, a question that's come in from, from one of our audience members, um, she, she asks what advice you have, she says, for feminists when dealing with non-feminist women who are in all areas of life, she says, I found that many non-feminist <coughs> women are part of the problem uh, in the continuation of sexism in our still very patriarchal Welsh society. Mm -hmm. They don't support women who are trying to challenge institutional and structural sexism. Well, here's, uh, yes, I mean, there, this is what she says is absolutely true. But what it's important to remember is that though, though women may be a problem for other women, they don't have the power to be the big problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, women may be adversaries, but we don't have the power to be our worst adversaries. <laughs> uh, for, for instance, there's now a, uh, a kind of a very, uh, not very good series here uh, called Mrs. America. And it, it, it gives you the impression that a woman named Phyllis Schlafly, who was a very uh, religious and right-wing woman, uh, opposed the Equal Rights Amendment, it gives you the impression that she was the reason that was defeated. Mm -hmm. In actuality, I don't believe she changed one vote. Nobody could ever discover that she changed even one vote. The insurance industry here uh, opposed the Equal Rights Amendment because if they stopped sex segregating their actuarial tables, it would cost them millions upon millions of dollars. Wow. She she was just the sort of uh, I don't know public you know that's brought in at the last minute to mm -hmm. make it seem that women were against the which actually the vast majority of women always supported the equal rights amendment. It, it, now ninety percent of us support it. We still don't have it, but it, it, it was the, the series makes it seem as if women are our own worst enemies, mm -hmm. which keeps us from recognizing who our worst enemies are. Not that we don't aren't in conflict. Yes, we are in conflict. But by and large, we don't have the power to be our own worst enemies. And, and this idea of the kind of token woman is, is often used by the media as well in, in setting up uh, debates. Is, is this something that you've um, experienced? How do you how do you handle that when a uh, a media sort of debate seeks to sort of create a catfight uh, as a means of undermining feminist arguments. Well, that's the problem with this this ridiculous television show, which I'm sure. I mean, it's not. I'm sure the actors in it are fine, you know. But I mean, just the thrust of the story mm -hmm. is 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 the problem. So you just have to keep naming it. Yes. You know, and uh, the same is true racially, you know, that people would say, oh, black people can't get along. And so, no, the problem is racism. Hello, excuse me. So you just, uh, you just have to keep your eye on where the power and the problem is. Um, in terms of that idea of, of tackling the real problem, um, you refer very powerfully in the book to the period just before or just after a woman leaving an abusive relationship and, and that we know that is the most dangerous time when she's most likely to be killed. And you use this as an analogy for our present moment in history. 
um, suggesting that the moment at which we are perhaps about to be free uh, is a moment of great present danger. Um, can, can you talk to us a little bit about this present moment, about what you perceive to be those great dangers mm -hmm. and, and what we need to do to avoid them? Well, it's one of the great lessons of looking at microcosm and understanding its importance in the macrocosm, because it's, it's just perfectly statistically clear that a, a, in a domestic violence situation, a woman is most likely to be beaten or killed at the moment of just before or just after she escapes because she is escaping control and control is the point. So looking at that nationally, wherever we are or in whatever our larger group is, is very instructive. Now, speaking from my own country, we are just about uh, at the point of becoming no longer a majority white country the the first generation of babies who are majority babies of color has already been born and that something like 20 or 30 percent we don't know exactly but from public opinion polls people who really believe that they have a right to a hierarchy they were born into uh, is in fear and backlash mm -hmm. that's the part of the country that voted for Trump mm -hmm. It was not the majority. He lost the majority. He, uh, he won by a technicality called the Electoral College, I'm sorry to say, mm -hmm. which itself was only the slave-owning states wanted. We have to get rid of it. But, you know, it, it, it helps to explain. It, it's, both, it's both hopeful and fearful at the same time, if that makes sense, because we're at the moment when we are escaping which is a source of enormous hope. And if we look at the public opinion polls, we feel greatly heartened. Uh, but we have to recognize it's also a time of danger. Mm -hmm. And we need to look after each other and understand we can have a backlash like the so-called election of Trump, for whom I apologize <laughs> to the rest of the world. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so does that make sense? So, so I, I do think that there is an interesting and useful parallel or insight if thinking about a woman escaping, or a man, anyone, or a child, escaping a, a uh, violent home and a country in the process of moving towards a more real democracy. Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and you can find over 8,000 more events on the Hay Player over on our website. And that's it for Series 3. We'd like to thank everyone who's taken part in making this series of the Hay podcast such a success. We'll see you soon. Take care. <laughs>